Welcome to the ANCDS podcast. My name is Zach DeWall. I am a speech-language pathologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll be joining Michael Beal as co-host as we have a discussion with our guest, Peter Muhlenbrook. Peter Muhlenbrook uses sociolinguistic description and theory about talk at work to develop new ways to assess and treat persons with TBI who hope to return to stable employment. He runs the Social Communication and Cognitive Abilities Lab, where he has developed online assessment and treatment tools for social communication deficits after TBI. He is interested in increasing life participation after brain injury through employment and volunteer options. He is the chair of the ANCDS Writing Group for Traumatic Brain Injury and the editor for SIG2 Perspectives Journal, as well as assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. Well, Peter Muhlenbrook, welcome to the ANCDS podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Uh, you're here uh, with me, Mike Beal, and, and Zach DeWall. Zach, where are you at? Nashville, Tennessee, up in uh, Vanderbilt University. And Peter, where are you at? I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, not so far away. Um, I'm at the University of Kentucky. Cool, cool. Well, we're going to talk about um, the writing group that you participate in, the ANCDS Traumatic Brain Injury Writing Group. And before we talk about the purpose of that group and whatnot, can you just give us a little history on how you got into the field, how you got into this topic? Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, well, when I started my master's program, uh, I thought I wanted to go into aphasia. Uh, I was I was fascinated with all aspects of language, um, all of you know the the the, the subtleties of it, and um, uh, and I did my masters and I at Northwestern, and I thought that I, that's what I wanted to do. I stuck around Chicago for another year with my CF, and then I got a job over at Spalding Rehab in Boston, where I I, I grew up in in the Boston area. And so um, I, but I didn't get a, a position on the stroke unit. I got a position on the TDI unit half the day. And then the other half of the day, I worked in an outpatient and I was the point person for the mild TDI post-concussive clinic is what they called it at the time. Mm. Yeah. So I got to see people inpatient in the mornings who were profoundly impaired working with, um, you know, coma stim and, you know, uh, individuals who were minimally responsive. And then um, in the afternoon, I worked with high level, you know, uh, individuals trying to return to baseline work performance, you know, like physicians and um, uh, faculty members in the Boston area, yeah. lawyers. We, we got a, some really interesting high level individuals yeah. uh, with, with uh, mild TDIs that uh, I had the opportunity to work with. And because of that, I just got really interested in uh, the, you know, uh, just traumatic brain injury in general. And the whole issue with regards to um, renegotiating your identity after a brain injury, you know, mm. that trying to figure out who you are now. And a large part of that is, you know, trying to get yourself to fit into what you did before, like your work. And so I went on to do my PhD uh, with Lynn Terkstra. Um, and I, I worked on uh, a, a dissertation topic of return to work after TBI. 
Mm-hmm. And um, then I, uh, from there, I did my postdoc with Leora Cherney, uh, and I developed a treatment approach for social uh, communication skills because hmm. I found that uh, in my dissertation work that the social skills are obviously what you get hired and fired for. You know, you have the hard skills, but yeah. can you do well in an interview and do people want to work with you? And, you know, individuals who have communication disabilities and in particular social communication disabilities are not very employable and they don't maintain their employability, after, you know, after injury. If they are able to return back to work, they ought, if they have a, a pragmatic disorder or social communication disorder, they do not hold on to that job. And so I developed a treatment approach based off of the assessment I developed for my um, uh, dissertation. And now I'm, you know, at the University of Kentucky and I've turned it into, thankfully, a, com- uh, a, a computer software uh-huh. <laughs> that I can start seeing people with. Initially, it was because Kentucky was very rural and I wanted to make sure I had enough outreach. But um, hmm. you know, now in the days of COVID, you know, I'm just mixing it up with uh, a little bit of teletherapy. And, and, and trying to see if we can implement the social skills treatment with a computer. <laughs> how, how is that going, doing teletherapy? Is that, was that a new experience for you? Totally no, totally no. In fact, I haven't run a, a, a project or a research project yet using teletherapy, but it's definitely going to be how I'm modifying all of my research in the future. Um, you know, usually you can translate from teletherapy into face-to-face therapy much easier than you can tele- tra- translate from face-to-face into teletherapy. So why don't I just make sure that I can do things with the teletherapy approach? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this, you know, there's so so many of us, I'm doing just teletherapy now. Mm-hmm. How this, when we get back to normal, um, how this experience is going to influence our uh how we do treatment. I, I suspect for me anyways, that um, probably a greater proportion of my clients are going to stay teletherapy. Some of them really like it. They like not having to uh, go through LA traffic. Um, and, you know, for the right patient, you know, we can pretty much do everything. Is that been- it gives you all the structure too, which is wonderful. And some of the cases of just having like, we, we use slide by slide in a lot of our teletherapy and it's all right, here's the next thing, which has been terrific for that specific type of patient. Yeah, that structure is really important. And I, I think from what I heard, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm part of uh, the Ohio Valley Brain Injury you know, a group that does uh, recommendations for, um, you know, uh, the region for TBI practice. And what I had heard back at the beginning of the epidemic was that, um, you know, people by and large really didn't like it. But Mm. the feedback that we got was mainly because SLPs or clinicians don't really know how to do it well. And it Mm. sounds like Zach, I mean, you know, if you know, when you let, when you lack some structure or, or something's unfamiliar or just a mildly little bit more complicated to, you know, re- requires more working memory, maybe it's difficult. But I have the feeling that once people get used to it um, and once, you know, uh, we're able to find a structure that's helpful for people, it should, it should be around to stay because honestly, mobility is a difficult pro- uh, problem for this population with TBI. 
um, planning around things <laughs> in your, during your day. Uh, so anything that we, we can make that's easier, you know. So if you have an internet connection, that can, that can deal yeah, with it. E even more mundane yeah. barriers like, uh, you know, my workplace, being able to find a room to do group therapy in. Well, now we don't have to worry about a room. <laughs> <laughs> All the room I like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, the Traumatic Brain Injury Writing Group, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the purpose of that group in, in general? So the general mandate for ANCDS is to, you know, inform clinicians about what, you know, uh, what, what are, are uh, the appropriate um, um, ways of going about clinical practice, you know, so the we've started off doing a, a ton of systematic reviews to try and consolidate the literature and make them manageable and digestible to clinicians. Um, so, you know, we've taken that philosophy or that, that mission. Um, and we really wanted to focus on anything that's going to be more clinically uh, relevant um, and trying to package uh, some things that might be a little bit out of, uh, a, a clinician's comfort zone, but is important for them to know, we think, or we know <laughs> uh, uh, in clinical practice. Yeah. It seems like you guys have been fairly productive the last couple years. And the focus by and large has been social communication. Uh, why, why, I mean, I don't know the complete history of the writing group, but um, you know, what led you to focus on that recently? Um, well, time came up for uh, a new topic. Uh, Lindsay Byam and myself, um, both came out of Lynn Turkster's lab. Mm -hmm. Lindsay's over at UNC Chapel Hill. And so Lynn Turkster does social communication. <laughs> that was our area. And we were newbies on the ANCDS writing group. Mm -hmm. And so when, when they were, you know, when we just started, the, the, the first conversation was, well, what is it that we want to tackle? And immediately I said, social communication theory and how do we incorporate that into practice? Uh, because I've always been curious about why we do things. You know, I want to have a rationale that I can give to a client or, you know, just to justify my practice. And without some sort of, you know, uh, content validity, that is, you know, a model that says this is, an, a, this is how something works, um, you know, and uh, you can't really say what you're working on. And, and, and when you deal with social communication, it's one of those things that's so nebulous. Mm -hmm. I mean, so con contextually bound and so varied from person to person. And there's such a wide variance um, across the board of normal <laughs> yeah. with regard to what's socially appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having um, a, 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 some sort of at least a passing theory of knowledge can help you maybe prioritize a little bit about what you see um, and uh, and give you a little bit of a framework for how to how to approach it. So. We found out that, okay, well, at first I just thought this would be treatment, but then we, we thought, okay, the concept of social communication is one of those things that, you know, 
isn't necessarily taught very widely and well um, in, in the graduate uh, education. Uh, so we're going to need to lay that concept out. And then we're going to need to lay out, you know, assessment tools because that's what clinicians use in order to develop goals and pursue, you know, and, and oftentimes gives them a little framework for thinking about how they're going to go about treating that patient. Um, and then we wanted to look at uh, social communication treatments. Yeah. So it ended up not being one paper, but three. So that's why we've been productive. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mentioned before we started recording that I haven't done a lot of TBI work, mostly aphasia and motor speech disorders. So I'm not really that familiar with what general practice looks like in that area. Um, do SLPs typically focus much on social communication, do you think? Well, social communication is one of those things that seems to be one of the last uh, on the list of priorities. You know, mm -hmm. Obviously, when somebody is inpatient, you need to worry about you know, anything that's going to interfere with their medical care um, or their medical well-being or their health and well-being. But when you're dealing with social communication, basically, you're looking at the social well-being of the individual. And, you know, that might have changed since before their injury, you know. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, social well-being is how well do you uh, are you and how comfortable how well do you interact with your social environment and how comfortable are you with your own performance and how how do other people view you um, you know as, as as far as socially competent goes and so it's one of the one I mean it's one of those lower level uh, list of priorities but it has huge impacts because like I was telling you, you earlier I'm, I'm interested in in return to work and yes. you know um, People who have social communication disorders are just disenfranchised left, right, and center um, because, you know, people make attributions and, um, you know, uh, cast aspersions upon people who behave curiously in public. So, you know, um, it, it, it tremendously disenfranchises people in the long run and depression, uh, smaller social circles, our, our outcomes, um, the inability to maintain employment is a significant outcome. So even though it's, it's, it seems to be one of those final things we tend to cover, and so is it covered, it, it, do a lot of clinicians practice it? Mm. Probably not. And the other reason why people don't practice it, sorry for the long-winded response, but the other reason why people don't practice it um, is because they're not comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, um, there's some really good uh, review papers of clinicians' practice patterns. Mm. Uh, it's just surveys asking clinicians, um, you know, uh, when you, you know, when you deal with uh, social, when you deal with somebody who has social communication problems, what do you do? Or uh, what are the assessments that you use? And only 10% of clinicians uh, will use um, a, a standardized assessment. Um, and those, and so we reviewed those standardized assessments and they're not that great as far as ecological validity, uh, but less than 10%, um, really look at functional performance in, uh, a, a contextually appropriate, uh, um, uh, context for that individual. Mm. So in the home setting or how they interact when making an order at Starbucks or something along those lines. Mm. 
Hmm. One of the <clears throat> papers your group put out was a scoping review mm-hmm. on theories, frameworks, and models of social communication. Um, and one of the themes in that paper, and actually across the papers you all wrote, was the benefit of being familiar with theories. And, and you said something about kind of feeling comfortable um, assessing social communication and, and treating it. I know from my own experience, and it took me a while, I think, to get this. You know, I think early in my career, I, I was really focused on finding treatments and adding treatments to my repertoire. But I, I don't think it was until I really invested, invested myself in understanding some relevant theories that I started to feel comfortable. Because, well, why, why do you guys think the theory part is so important? I entirely agree with you. That, that I think, is um, one of those... Uh, things that comes a little bit with uh, uh, clinical maturity, mm-hmm. <laughs> your appreciation for theory. Because yeah. when you're first starting out, you just want you just want to know what to do, yeah. and you just want to have instruction on what do I do with somebody with a TBI. Well, there, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> there's no template that really kind of suffices. Uh, what are the treatments available? So maybe if I knew a bunch of different treatments, I could be able to pick one of those. Okay. Yeah. But if that's how you go about it, um, then you just, you know, you find, and you use your verb, you, you wanted to find treatments and you wanted to add treatments to your repertoire. Mm. But um, what I think uh, clinicians eventually um, get to as they um, improve their clinical skills is they want to know why. Yeah. Mm. I've always wanted to know why a treatment would work. Uh, so that if, if I knew what the underlying ingredients or the, 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 the pieces of that treatment and, um, you know, why those pieces of that treatment are important, I can say, oh, that would be appropriate for this patient in front of me. And then I can, then I can be able to prescribe, you know, uh, a treatment and, and not necessarily, you know, one of those, uh, treatments that are really uh, very scripted or entirely, you know, um, encased in structure, uh, you know, but you might be able to be flexible with those treatments. If you knew the ingredients, if you knew the different parts and models tell you that models mm-hmm. can, can break apart complex concepts into more manageable units. And so when we looked at what are the, what are the treatment models in, uh, social communication, well, we found out that there weren't a lot of treatment models. All the models were based off of normal processing or what would be considered to be normal social skills. So the cognitive models, uh, we came up with three different uh, types of uh, flavors of models. Uh, cognitive models, which look at all of the component con- constructs like attention, memory, executive functioning, social cognition, and all of those components kind of put together. Um, so there's a couple of set of models that we have in that paper that kind of look at that. And then we have the social competence models where we, which kind of look at, um, you know, the assumption that there's an interaction, uh, and it's not just 
in the brain of the individual, but it's also within uh, the parts of the interaction with other people and with the environment, you know, and things like socioeconomic status and, um, you know, your lifetime background and all of those um, uh, domains to your life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of, you know, contribute to how you um, uh, interact. And then, of course, we have the linguistics and pragmatics models, uh, which look at language as they interact with um, uh, semantics. Uh, so words um, combining with other words to provide, um, you know, a more subtle semantic uh, uh, communication. And so we kind of looked at all of those three and then tried to find what was clinically relevant and what, how those things, how thinking along those, uh, those lines of reasoning might help a clinician be able to kind of pick apart a patient. And I've always looked at social communication very similarly as I look to executive functioning. Mm. You know, in that executive functioning is not a list of, I mean, it, you can break it down to a list of constructs, but, but it's basically problem solving. Yeah. How well can you solve a problem? Like, and social communication is social problem solving. How, how do you choose what words to use? Why, you know, uh, what, figuring out why somebody would say what they said and then interpreting it appropriately, making those inferences. Uh, so if, if, if you can understand where that person with TBI is having those problems, you then might say, okay, well, let's just help this person problem solve socially. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and then in that, in, in that way, those models come very helpful. Yeah, and it, it seemed that that paper did a good job of giving a big picture overview of this lands- landscape. Yeah. yeah, I give Lindsay Byam a ton of credit for that. It, it's it's a difficult, it's one of those things that it's so nebulous and so, um, uh, it, it's very easy to, to end up sounding like you're talking about nothing. <laughs> right, yeah. And yeah. so we tried to use a lot of examples and ground it in uh, clinical practice. So um, it was a tough one to write, and Lindsay did a fantastic job with it uh, as the as the main author. Yeah. Well, for the for the therapist, you know, who's maybe newer to this topic and reading this paper, do you have any sense of, you know, once they read this paper, where they would go from there in terms of their studying, their reading, anything like that? Um, in terms of this paper, yeah. um, well, we we thought of these three papers as all you know sister papers, so right. we we immediately went into the assessment and then the treatment pieces because mm-hmm. um, that's where we felt, you know, uh, once you have um, a little bit of an idea about, you know, how to think about social communication, yeah. now you can look at how do I assess it and what do I want to look for in an instrument that would assess social communication. Mm-hmm. And once you have an idea about what social communication is, you can look at treatment approaches and mm-hmm. what are the in, um, uh, components to tr- to um, to treatment of social communication that I'm going to want to to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. If 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 you want to know, I guess if you kind of feel like you have a good idea about these uh, social theories, maybe the next place to go would be something along the lines of. Um, interview techniques mm. because you know the patient that you're working with so you, you can apply these concepts and Interesting. i think 
the I think and um, yeah, actually, uh, um, Louise Keegan and I wrote a, 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 a book chapter recently, and where I we, we talk about um, the different life domains that people have, and so we talk differently at work than we talk um, with social socially and with friends. Then we talk with family, um, and then maybe we talk at um, you know, uh, along with friends that we don't know very well, or so we have all of these domains of our life where we modify our speech, our manners, our intonations and things like that. And uh, we do so with a certain effect because we want to communicate a little bit about our personality and who we are. And so, um, but there's something, there's some commonality between how you present yourself at work, to your family, to your friends. Um, and that is you, you know, and so really social communication is a, a, an expression of, of who you are and how you conceive of yourself as, as an individual. And um, that's what one of the things that changes drastically after traumatic brain injury, you know, they have this crisis of identity after injury because no longer can they accomplish what they want. And so re reestablishing who they are, you know, at least socially, you have some sort of control over that, hopefully. Um, and, um, so when you're identifying, uh, and, and, and doing an interview, you might want to look at those different domains and, and then just have a discussion with them. So why is it that you communicate differently at work, you know, and then just get an idea of the thought processes that people have. These are things, and that's the other problem with pragmatics. We don't think about what we, you know, why we say things. So you're, with people who have, you know, metacognitive skills problems and abstraction problems, they probably won't be able to give you a very good answer as to why. People who have very good <laughs> uh, 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 internal awareness of uh, their own uh, abilities and, and limitations, they still probably won't be able to tell you why they said something. Or, you know, it, 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 so you're, you're going to, it's probably going to be an investment of time um, where you can have you know, a, a, a directed line of conversations where you are just getting to know who this person is and helping them to understand and, and negotiate that with you so that they, they're in agreement with you as to what the target is for social communication. Yeah. And using those, those interview skills is um, an interesting component of clinical practice that I'm picking up on. And I think with knowing the models two that are described in the paper, knowing what I'm trying to pull out, like, and having that sort of network that I'm trying to tie into of which component of his social communication skills of his social cognition skills, wh where, where is the deficit at and how can I pull out further on that? And then relate that to his life and be able to talk about it. Um, because I, I feel so often it's met with, well, that's your rule or that's, her rule, you know, that's not who I am. That's never who I've been and being able to draw it. Well, you know, let's figure out what your rules are then, which has been an interesting sort of as a clinician to draw up rule sheets that I then work on with the patient of, okay, all right. So let's talk. How do you greet the, how do you greet the front desk when you get here? You know, what, mm -hmm. what level of, inhibition are you using there versus talking with your wife at home versus, you know, other people within their life. And so applying that with the knowledge of it fits within this theory or this theory certainly helps. <laughs> yeah. 
That's, yeah. that's exactly, that's right on Zach. I think um, uh, that's also kind of inspired us into our, our, our new direction. So we're, we're working on, you know, just conceptually right now, working on uh, building up that therapeutic alliance. Uh, so we want to have some papers out on how to establish a uh, therapeutic alliance and looking at aspects of resiliency and looking at that sort of intersection. So, you know, we're, we're just sort of, you know, it brought us to that area because, yeah, when you are dealing with with these things where people can just shoot back and say, well, that's your rule or that's what you do. You know, okay, that's not me. Well, you need to establish with the patient or the client who are you. And, yeah. and you need to show them that you understand and appreciate who they are before you move forward with any social communication intervention. Because it needs to be tailored to them and they need to have confidence that you know what they're going for or are open to listening to it. Yeah, I'm working towards your goals. These are not, this is not me checking boxes. Yeah. So, yeah, with, I'm thinking of a specific case where printed all these blank sheets out of, okay, so what's the, what's the rules of proximity, you know, kind of use these other assessment measures. Um, the one that I came upon was like a pragmatic sort of rating scale okay. picking out. So how much eye contact should you be having? Is it 25, you know, 25, 50%? How loud should you be talking? How dynamic should your voice be? And all of these rules are different from being in a group therapy class to meeting with a physician to meeting with a potential employer. Okay, now let's assign that a number. So this is one out of five as far as how limited you should be, you know, or careful you should be in five out of five, you know, trying to get that then to generalize beyond just in my room. And so you can measure it, you know, and so yeah. if they come back and they do a role play with you, they can say, well, I feel, you know, that's getting towards where I want to be, you know? Yeah. So as long as the patient and the client, I always go back and forth between yeah. those type of things, but <laughs> as long as the client is, um, you know, uh, aware that you have aware of what the target is. I mean, that, that's a, one of the most rookie mistakes is to just sort of have an assumption that the client knows where it is that they're going. Mm. You know, if they don't know what the purpose of the treatment is, <laughs> they're not going to get any better. Yeah. So, you know, you need to establish what is that social uh, benchmark that they're looking to achieve. Um, what is something that will be, um, you know, something that they perceive as socially acceptable and you perceive as something that would be socially acceptable within their community. So, yeah. um, you know, or whatever situations that they'll be in and, and allow them to, to take that lead. And, and in fact, that uh, what you brought up uh, with regards to, you know, um, you know, knowing that patient, that was one of the, the um uh, faults that we found with a lot of the assessment, you know, uh, uh, papers. So with, hmm. with the uh, second paper or the first paper that we really did, which was, um, the assessment paper was what we found was there weren't a lot of them. Um, not only were they not ecologically valid, but they kind of looked at things in deep decontextualized fashion, hmm. but they didn't really prioritize the communication, um, values in the needs of the individual. So, you know, what you're talking about is exactly that. And yeah. a lot of standardized or structured measures will, will help give a clinician that, that, that kind of framework, which is so important to figure out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've just read the paper um, about the assessment that first of that series um, and very excited to be 
looking at the the new tools that I can pull in because I've used the Latrobe before and used the Pragmatics rating scale, um, but being able to develop my therapy goals within my initial evaluation note, um, you know, that are a bit more targeted towards specific items would be tremendous. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading those papers. <laughs> it could be just as easy as just adding on to the, you know, the, the Latrobe or the um, SSQR. Uh, um, what did you think about these questions? You know? Mm. Yeah. And then also getting them to give, give you some sort of, you know, how important is this to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or how important this would this be to you um, if you're trying to get, uh, if, if you're trying to get into a volunteer position or, you know, and, and move the next, next step to getting a job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Latrobe question of, you know, um, speaks basically telling mistruths, whatever it is, but not speaking factually all the time. Is that something that happens all the time or never? Yeah. If it's all the time, does that bother you that you do that? Or <laughs> is that something that you intend to do? And then, yeah, how does that translate into your life goal of getting back to work or having a healthier marriage or whatever it might be? Yeah. This all kind of ties together, doesn't it? I mean, really knowing the, the theory and being comfortable with that. I mean, knowing why we're going to make the recommendations that we make makes it that much easier to help our patients to educate them so that they can genuinely come on board with something to, so they can genuinely self-endorse any course of action. And then, you know, Peter, you mentioned the therapeutic alliance, not in, in interviewing, not just knowing the, the topic areas that you want to cover, but having those basic counseling skills that, um, makes you more effective at um, getting stuff from people, you know, of, of getting, you know, it, we know with our clients, it can be for various reasons, communication problems, cognitive issues. It can be tough to get them to really elaborate. I mean, yeah. not only are they at a deficit in terms of maybe understanding their condition and what rehab is all about, but, you know, there's a real skill and art to being able to draw th things out of people and move them into some kind of reflective space. Yeah, one way, you know, uh, to do that is just give them a concrete example of what your interpretation is and ask them if they agree with that or disagree with that. But then you get, you know, to the point where this could be exhausting because mentally it's a lot to, you know, even even answer those kinds of questions, even though you you, you took a lot of the working memory and um, all of those other cognitive components, which can fatigue uh, somebody with TBI uh, out of the equation, uh, they still might not necessarily want to <laughs> answer you. Yeah. What we find in, in, in the clinic, uh, when, in, in, in my lab, is whenever we ask people, you know, what what is somebody else? What, what what do you think your conversation partner is thinking here? What do you think your converse about what you're saying? You know, what is it that you're saying? What ideas are getting in their heads? And then two, what is it that uh, in how you're saying it makes them feel? Right. You know, um, 
And so we try and get them to answer those two types of questions. And uh, yeah, they oftentimes, they'll, once they find an answer that um, will stop us from asking those questions, they just put that answer and keep going with it. <laughs> but uh, so it really, really is. And so you brought up counseling, you know, uh, and that's exactly where I'm going right now. Why avoid people from doing the easy thing um, to doing the hard thing? Because we all know that, you know, <laughs> no pain, no gain. Uh, therapy isn't supposed to be easy. Um, you know, if there's not um, an effort put in, put forth, then you're not necessarily going to see, you know, improvement as well as so. So one, you need to get them to have a clear idea about what it is socially that they want and where it is that and have a clear conception of where is it that they're going. And then two, you really need them to be a participant, uh, a, a, a willful and a participant and um, partner in in that pursuit of doing the hard thinking so that you can practice it enough to so that it becomes a little bit more more natural yeah yeah um the 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 paper you did on treatment mm -hmm. i'm not sorry not treatment assessment um can you give us a synopsis of of what you guys found there yeah um, so you know um the the main uh, push for that was uh, because, in general, SLPs feel a little less confident um, about assessing social communication as they might aspects of cognition. Um, you know, we can decontextualize cognition and look at what's called cold cognition as just, you know, simple um, um, mental heuristics or operations that your brain will perform versus social um, uh, 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 information, which uh, has ambiguity and you're looking at probability of why somebody might be feeling something or a probability that somebody might interpret something some way, you know, depending on how much information you're giving them. Or, uh, so that is a big nuance that is difficult um, for clinicians to feel comfortable with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's why we wanted to uh, incorporate that. We were also interested in looking at, well, our, are there treatment, is treatment theory um, used at, uh, in, in the assessment? And if so, you know, what aspects of treatment theory are, are used? That was part of the original intent, but it's sort of, you know, as we, as we went through um, with this, it was a state of the art review, it turned out to be. So that just means, you know, we looked at, um, you know, what are the practice pattern or, or what are the practice tools that we have um, and what are we using? Um, you know, and does that fit with theory and how uh, theory of assessment and theory of, of social communication? Uh, we found that, you know, in our literature review, like I said, less than 10%, less than 10% look at functional communication. Um, you know, uh, we, we tend to focus a little bit more where we're more comfortable with. Um, and so when we looked at all of the assessment tools, we were able to find 42 measures and we kind of looked at all of these measures and we looked at to, to see whether or not there were, you know, measures that could be given in an ongoing fashion. So as you're working with the patient, you need to check in again, you know, and see if they're moving forward. Uh, are they contextualized? You know, because that's the main aspect of pragmatics that makes it so difficult. I use the term social communication and pragmatics interchangeably. Mm. Um, you know, is it contextualized? So what are the contextualized components that give that probability that, you know, somebody might think, the x y or z about what you say uh, whether it was appropriate or not 
Um, and then collaborative, like we were talking about, you know, you need to know the, the patient needs to know the client needs to know where they're going and, um, and, and what the goal are the goal is. And, 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 and the clinician needs to know that too. It's also rooted in the hypothesis testing. So that's the fourth piece that we were looking at it. Um, so, uh, recognizing that multiple factors contribute to behaviors and any one of those things uh, could be at the root cause. So even though you found, um, you know, a behavior to be uh, maybe the person's uh, uh, verbose, you know, is that due to anxiety um, uh, or about forgetting what was on the, you know, uh, mm. about the next thing, thing that they were going to say, or is it um, that, you know, they're not paying attention to the other person and what the other person says. Um, they're not appreciating or putting so, uh, any much meaning into that content. And so they're not interested. You know? yeah. So what is going on there that makes the person verbose? Is it because they don't really care what you, what you have to say or is it because they can't or they're anxious? You know, so there are many different aspects or, or root causes to these kinds of behaviors. And you just kind of have to be able to identify which ones. So we found that, um, yeah, just a breakdown. I just wrote down some notes for myself. Sure. Like 60% of, of uh, assessments looked at aspects of social cognition. So that is emotion perception, uh, being, able, um, being able to make inferences um, appropriately. So why did somebody say something uh, in this kind of context? And then theory of mind, you know, what is that person thinking? So that's why we ask those questions in my, in my lab what is the other person thinking? What is the other person feeling? So that we're, we're taxing that emotion recognition and that theory of mind, um, and then helping to bring them to make those um, uh, inferences that are necessary for understanding why is somebody behaving the way they are? And how do you communicate things with nuance? Um, yeah, and then uh, the other, uh, so that's social cognition. Those are the three components of social cognition and their social, uh, then the other, uh, one third kind of looked at just communication in general mm. and um, less than half of them were ecologically grounded. So they didn't really look at um, a contextualized assessment. How do you go about uh, assessing this? You know, honestly, I use the Latrobe a lot. I love the Latrobe communication questionnaire. Uh, um, the uh, Sydney psychosocial communication questionnaire, the SSQR. I really, really like that. Um, a lot. Um, I think there was a Montreal something in there too that seemed to be rated pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah. The NEC, the Montreal. Yeah. Um, I forget what it, the NEC stands for. You know, exactly <laughs> I'm blanking on it too. I I, I looked Was at it, it emotional. Also. Yeah. Um, Montreal emotional something. I don't know. Uh, yes, I, I actually got a, um, a copy of that. Um, and I've been using that. I, I, but honestly, what I've done is um, I, I, I like just talking with the patient. You know, I feel like <laughs> it's good to get the um, – assessments and and so the latrobe can open you know open itself up to being you know an open-ended conversation but i i think if you're not getting um insight into the patient's own perceived needs of what they need to communicate for 
and their feelings about their communication and what they think their communication profile is, whether or not they've thought of it. Mm-hmm. If you can get if you can get a flavor of that, present that to them, and then they can tell you whether or not you're on the on the right page. I think that that starts the assessment much better. Excuse me, that yeah. starts the assessment much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I think. And, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was just gonna say um, I, that's why I like the the rating scales. Um, mm-hmm. Is it allows me to converse sort of freely with the patient and have that conversation about there and then be able to sort of quantify what it is that was most provide some guidance in that regard. Yeah. Like I said, you know, it, it prompts, it's a, it's a good avenue to prompt those kinds of questions because, uh, and, and the good thing about the Latrobe is that it's based off of, you know, a pragmatic, uh, Grace's maxims. Uh, so, um, you know, a quantity, quality, manner, and relation. Uh, so relevance of the information that's being communicated. Do they talk too much? Do they talk too little? Um, you know, do they say things that are truthful or not, which is one yeah. something you brought up. <laughs> um, and manner is when they communicate things, is their manner consistent with their feelings and how they want to communicate that information? So, um, you know, it, it, it's a nice example of something. And then they also, uh, I think they've done an update. I um, with an, uh, with cognitive communication variables that are also put into the mix. Uh, but that's the factor loading for um, the Latrobe communication questionnaire. And they, um, they do kind of a good job with, with those questions, um, getting at what they, what they intend to. And it's been, it's been related to employment outcomes because like I said, social communication is vital for employment um, as well as um you know, other participation level outcomes and, and life after brain injury. Mm-hmm. The, so a, but I like a discussion as well. I'm sorry? So that's a good one, but I like the discussion as well. Yeah. 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 I guess I use that often with the other form. So I've had the spouse complete the Latrobe other and mm-hmm. then, and then, you know, do a pragmatics rating scale or something, looking at specific examples while I'm talking to the patient about what are your goals or what, what brings you in today. And yeah, do we, is it 15 minutes later that we're wrapping up that first question or yeah. Yeah. yeah those are great. That, that's a great pattern um, to use. And of course, yeah, you want to get the other person's view. So you get the individual. So there's two versions of the Latrobe. There's a self and another. Uh, there's a two versions of the SSQR as well. There's a self, and another so you know awareness and insight tend to be a problem after traumatic brain injury and in order to combat that they want to look at other people who are you know uh, common raters but uh or not common uh, communication partners to rate them but the problem there is if we were to take these these measures we oftentimes inflate our own scores mm-hmm. and family members will inflate their scores relative to what an slp would rate them so in general, we all have these bi- these rating biases, and we just need to consider that when we're interpreting those scores. So is is the discrepancy between the self and other ratings so great, um, or is it just minor? You know, um, does it really indicate you know uh, an insight and awareness deficit? And do you have other other factors that you can say in order to support your impression that that there's an awareness problem, um, or is it just one of those um, typical sorts of uh, social psychology biases that we have uh, yeah. when we're self-ratings? 
uh, the treatment paper. Mm-hmm. Um, how about a, a, a synopsis of your treatment paper? That was a, a an interesting read, also. Yeah, I am fascinated with um, the RTSS. Uh, that's the Rehab Treatment Specification System. Um, yeah, can and... you talk about that a little bit? I was looking at it. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah, um, that does look like an interesting way of conceptualizing breaking down treatment. It's it's good. It's not the best way to do it, but um, it, it's it's it seems to be. You know, people who uh, are putting it forth are, you know, um, heavy hitters and, you know, people yeah. are going to be listening to them. Sure. Uh, so the, the, the whole bat, the whole, they're trying to basically consolidate rehab theory um, into um, a, a verbiage or terminology um, that we can then have discourse, okay, uh, uh, between all disciplines. To explain what is it that we're doing, because OTs work off of behavioral treatment approaches, just as SLPs do, just as PTs do, just as you know, rec therapy does, and you know, music therapy does, and neuropsychologists that they're treating they do. So we we basically say, okay, well, we've got a patient in front of us. You know, that patient needs to be a, a willing participant. Okay, so based off of that assumption. What are the ingredients that you use? So that is, what does the clinician say or do to the patient um, that they have a reason to believe would result in some change in behavior? And why is it that you believe it would change behavior? So I've been incorporating this when I teach cognitive communication um, at, at the University of Kentucky to the mm-hmm. master's students here. So I want them to be able to say, I am giving this kind of treatment, using the ingredients, to this patient mm-hmm. uh, because I want, because we have a goal to achieve. And I believe, you know, uh, that the mechanism of action or the, the, uh, the reason why this uh, treatment or this intervention will work is, is thus. And so anything you can talk about, you know, if it's OTs talking to SLPs, if they speak within those um, parameters, we can understand that logic. And it's basically breaking down therapy into a logical sequence of steps and being able to communicate it. Mm-hmm. And so what, I, what we wanted to do in this paper um, was break down the social communication uh, uh, treatment literature into its constituent RTSS components, and that is the ingredient mechanism of action, um, and you know, uh, you know, the output. What it is, what it is that you want to have changed. Sorry. And I'm sorry, what the treatment targets? Yeah. So, yeah. so the ingredient, the treatment uh, ingredients, the mechanisms of action, and then what is the target? Is it verbosity? Is it um, you know, uh, n- not asking too many inclusive questions to somebody if, if, if we're working on dating, <laughs> but instead of talking about yourself the whole time, uh, those sorts of things. Um, so that would be a treatment target. And so uh, how would you? you? Would you do that by providing examples? And why would you think providing examples would help? Would you do that by doing a role play? And if you do a role play, what are the kinds of feedback that you're going to give? And why do you think that feedback is going to be helpful? Hmm. So... You know, we broke down um, 
you know, uh, the social communication literature into hopefully the constituent RTSS parts. So there were three of us that were doing the coding for this. Uh, and we found that the mechanism of action is way too ambiguous to generalize across all, all people because it's, it, you know, and, and really you can't, you can't say it's going to be the same mechanism of action for patients X, Y, and Z. It just doesn't work because X, Y, and Z have their own, have their own, you know, what, what they respond to might be different. You know, like I said earlier, there's different reasons why people respond to things. And X, Y, and Z might have all three different reasons of why they would respond to this treatment ingredient. Mm. So that's what, that's how we kind of broke it apart and looked at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so we, we wanted to find out, uh, there were systematic reviews basically that found that yes, social communication interventions are appropriate, but we wanted to look at, well, what are the interventions that are out there? What have we looked at? What kind of ingredients have we examined? Uh, so what are the tools that we have and how, so if, if we know who the patient is, you know, what ingredients are we going to start incorporating? Not what treatments are we going to do because it works, but why are we going to, to, to treat the way we treat? Um, you know, we, when you, when you're talking about social communication, you need to be absolutely present and be thinking about all of those things. Uh, so, you know, um, I, we thought it was important, uh, to, to include that and, and to analyze it in, in that way. Um, so hopefully that catches on a little bit. I really love the RTSS and, and you know, I'm developing as I continue to develop this uh, treatment program, uh, for social communication in the workplace, you know, I'm thinking about it in that RTT perspective, like, okay, well, if I add this ingredient, you know, how does that complicate <laughs> uh, me yeah. examining the outcomes and, you know, from a, from a methodological standpoint, you know, like I, I'm interested in looking at the individual con- uh, contributions of the pieces of, of, of treatment. Um, mm-hmm. You're, uh, you mentioned that you're possibly going to start looking at therapeutic alliance. Is there some crossover here between this treatment paper and what you think you might be looking at with your therapeutic alliance work? There is and there isn't. I mean, I think, you know, um, what's true with working with this population uh, for executive functioning and and social communication is generally true across the board. Um, You know, you, you need to have that contextualized approach. You need to have um, the, you know, the patient needs to understand and be on board with what are the goals. So they need to know what the goals are and they need to agree with those goals in order to, you know, achieve anything. Um, and, um, and you need to practice, uh, you know, uh, in environments that are going to be similar to the environments that you want them to generalize to. So if, if you're training workplace communication, you need either, you need to either set up a simulation that is appropriately, um, is as appropriate for the type and style of work that the person's doing, you know. Um, so anyways, it, uh, it kind of came out of this, but I think it's true across all, all different types of treatment targets that you would have with this population, whether it's social communication or cognitive skills, uh, cognitive communication skills. Um, mm-hmm. So basically the therapeutic alliance and that resilience component, uh, we're interested in looking at 
you know, can we increase resilience? Uh, that is how the, how the uh, client responds uh, to their deficit, how they respond to failure, how they respond to success. Do they take, um, you know, a more positive spin? Do they externalize or internalize those mistakes that they're making? Um, and again, like you said, counseling, you know, what are the tools that we have at counseling tools that we have to help, help shape that, uh, so yeah. that it's a, a constructive, um, uh, more resilient type of response to a disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are, what are those counseling skills that contribute to, uh, the, the therapist, um, ability to create that therapeutic alliance and establish that meaningful relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, resilience seems to be a topic that's coming up more and more, uh, in multiple, um, disorders. Mm-hmm. It, it really is because, um, you know, it, it, it harkens back to that, you know, uh, individual needs to, we all do behavioral therapy and if the patient's not, going to be a willful participant in that therapy you're not going to get anywhere and so resilience really um, is a major factor in determining whether or not that patient's going to be uh, a meaningful participant you know do they externalize their problems or do they see it as something that they have control over you know what's the locus of control or what's the yeah yeah it's it 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 it, it, it's one of those concepts that just crosses all all aspects of behavioral intervention it, it does and and surprising that we haven't looked at it a lot sooner because it okay. is well, it is so fundamental mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and that's let me say this actually the part of the rtss that's frustrating is that it's all about what the clinician does and says yeah not about how that patient responds to it and hmm. so that is that that's the biggest weakness for the rtss from you know um a clinical perspective but from a research perspective, it's very um, rich in that, you know, because you can't control, that's something that you can't control, um, you know, and what you can control is what you give to the patient. So that's designed to really help us um, analyze uh, treatments and help develop treatments. Um, but to look at uh, performance about how somebody's performing, um, it doesn't help you out with that at all. So. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, Peter, uh, thank you very much for um, spending time with us and, and talking about this. It's uh, really interesting stuff, and um, I found the papers fascinating, even though this isn't my, my population. I, I felt like I could still take stuff from it and, and apply it to um, the clients that I work with, most definitely. Yeah. That was our that was our aim, so that's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... As I read, I would write questions in the margins, and then about the next paragraph, you would answer that question. So <laughs> from a yeah, very clinical perspective, yeah. really, thank you. Yeah, they're terrific. Yeah, everybody on the writing group for the yeah. ANPS has a strong clinical you know, mindset. So. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit ANCDS.org.
www.ghostbusters.org.